James uh, chapter 5 as we make our way through this short yet powerful book. Uh, We come to chapter 5, so I'd like to begin reading there in verse 1 down to verse 6. So let us once again give ear to the reading of God's holy, infallible, inspired word, James chapter 5. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Where the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's ask his blessing upon it now. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. So we pray that as your word is proclaimed today, that you would pierce our hearts with its truth. We pray that you would uh, grant to us faith to believe all that is promised to us in the gospel, as well as hearts of gratitude for all that Christ has done. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Well, beloved Lord, we come to the last chapter of the book of James. And I don't know about you, but I have really enjoyed our time in this short and yet powerful letter. But I must confess, it has not been easy. There's been many powerful things that James has said time and time again. He has rebuked his readers on many occasions for being mere hearers of the word and not doers only, for failing to bridle their tongues, for showing partiality, for their bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, their fights and their quarrels, their worldliness, covetousness, and pride. In no uncertain terms, James has soberly warned us of the consequences of our sins and God's imminent judgment for those who refuse to repent. But he has never left us without hope. Writing to us as brothers, he urges us to repent and believe, to turn from our sinful ways and to humble ourselves before the Lord so that he may exalt us. And yet when we come to our passage today, we we find and read what is perhaps the harshest and most unrelenting language in the whole letter. And there is no hope of escape in this. He tells the rich to weep and to howl. Calvin says in his commentary, all that he says here tends to despair. There is no hope for these people to whom James is speaking. And so that prompts the question, well, who is James addressing? Well, clearly it's the rich, but we might ask, well, which rich? (laughs) The rich that are in the church or the rich that are outside of the church? As we saw last week at the end of chapter four, James addressed those who were of wealth, who had money, who were within the church, wealthy Christians, those who called upon the name of the Lord, who knew the right thing to do. And he warned them of their pride and their self-confidence. 
And he urged them to submit to the Lord, to submit to God's providential hand and his will for their life. And rather than boasting in their arrogance, James says, the rich, the Christian rich, should boast in their humility. And so it's important to note here that there is nothing wrong innately, uh, there's nothing innately sinful with being rich. If it's the Lord's will to bless you with material possessions, great. But we should never set our heart on riches when they increase. Good example of this would be two men that James actually singles out as men who are men of faith and piety. Of course, Abraham, who he mentioned in chapter two, and Job, who, who he will mention later in this chapter, both of those men were immensely wealthy. But of course, they did not set their heart on the riches. And so we ought to do the same when the Lord blesses us with material possessions. And so at the end of chapter four, he was speaking to the Christian rich and warning them against their pride and self-confidence. But in chapter five, his tone changes. Like the prophets of old, James denounces the rich who are doomed to destruction. And so here I think it's clear, he's speaking of those who are in the world, the non-Christians who have immense wealth. And that prompts another question If indeed he's writing to those who are in the world, what's the likelihood of them even hearing this message? Probably pretty unlikely. And so why does James address a, a group of people who were so unlikely to even hear this letter read? Well, again, he's not unlike the prophets of old who spoke to the surrounding nations, had prophecies of doom and gloom and destruction for the surrounding nations, and those messages probably never reached their intended, or the, the, the ones to whom they were addressed. But although James addresses these words to the world, it's important to note they are, that they are written for us. These words are written for us. And I think there's two purposes here for James to speak this way. First of all, it's to comfort us in our present distress. He'll go on to say in verse seven, he'll urge his audience to be patient therefore until the coming of the Lord. Remember, James is writing to a Jewish diaspora, many of whom, the vast majority of whom were poor and who were oppressed by the rich. And so he says these words to comfort them and to urge them to be patient until the coming of the Lord. But I think James has another intention here in writing such harsh words for the rich. He wants to warn us, especially those of us who are of wealth, who do have means. He wants to warn us against not becoming like one of them. As he saw, as we saw at the end of chapter four, he warned them against pride and self-confidence of the sin of materialism, of, of making your life all about just making money and accumulating wealth. He says, do not be like the world who are doomed to destruction. This is Jesus' point when after his encounter with the rich young ruler, who although outwardly was a very pious man, we are told that he had a lot of stuff. And so he went away sad and dejected when the Lord said, sell all that you have and come and follow after me. Jesus turned to his disciples and he said, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. 
And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So as with our Lord, so here James warns us against becoming like the rich, falling into that trap of materialism. Now earlier, so so he begins his warning with the command for them to weep and howl. You may recall earlier in the letter that James urged the double-minded Christians within the church to repent and to show forth godly sorrow. He said to them in chapter 4, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. But you see, all of that godly sorrow was so that it would lead to repentance and a cleansing from sin. But this command, on the other hand, to weep and howl is not the godly sorrow which leads to repentance and forgiveness and restoration. No, this weeping and howling is a cry of total despair. It is the shriek of terror that, would, that will come upon the lips of all of those who are the objects of God's wrath. As we read in the book of Revelation, the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and powerful and everyone, slave and free, will call upon the mountains and rocks and say, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Weeping and howling for the imminent doom, the miseries that are coming upon them. You see, at the time of writing, the rich were living a life of luxury and comfort, but James warns them of their imminent doom. And he condemns them in our passage of doing four things. First of all, he condemns them for hoarding their wealth. Second of all, he condemns them for defrauding their workers. Third, of their selfish indulgence. And finally, he condemns them for the sin of murder. So first, hoarding their wealth, he says, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. Here, James describes their wealth as being spoiled and ruined due to their disuse. I remember the first suit I ever purchased. Somebody actually lent me money to buy it because I was a poor seminary student and I bought the suit so that I could go and uh, preach at different churches. And yet one time I remember putting on that suit and I remember I was, I was eating it in an out burger with, with our elder, David Francisco. And I looked down and I noticed that there were holes in my pants. And I thought, oh, that's what it looks like to have moths eat your clothes. Now, boys and girls, why did I have holes in my pants? Because I never wore the suit. Maybe I wore it once a year. Otherwise, it stayed in my closet. And that's exactly what happens if you don't wear your clothes. Moths will eat them. But as a rolling stone gathers no moss, Worn clothes have no moths eating them. And that's exactly what James is describing here. You see, in the ancient world, the vast majority of people would only have one pair of clothes. And they wore that same pair of clothes every single day. But the rich, to flaunt their wealth, would have all sorts of clothing. And yet the moths would eat them. 
because they had so much they couldn't even wear them all. They would have so much food that it would go rotten rather than living uh, paycheck to paycheck and eating the bread, that, the, your daily bread, like the vast majority of the people. I think about you know, a, a lot of these people at the early days of COVID, they ran into the grocery stores and cleaned the shelves and hoarded all that food for themselves. And you have to wonder, how's that food right now? Have they eaten it all? All that rice, the, the 50 pound bag of rice that they bought, are they gonna get through that bag? This is what's being described here. Even the gold and silver, it's corroded through disuse. They've accumulated more than they could ever use, so it all rots and rusts and moths destroy it. And so that's why Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. Calvin says in his commentary, God has not appointed gold for rust nor garments for moths, but on the contrary, he has designed them as aids and helps to human life. And spending without benefit is a witness of inhumanity. So that's why James says that the, the, their corroded silver and gold, their moth-eaten clothing, their rotted food will be evidence against them and testify against the rich in the last day because they did not put their wealth to better use. For example, helping other people, giving to those who are in need, giving out of their abundance so that they could help their fellow man. He says, you have stored up treasures for yourself in the last day. Now here when he speaks of the last day, he's not referring to the end of the rich people's life, nor is he just referring to a day in the future when Christ returns. But when James speaks of the last day, he, together with all the other New Testament authors, is referring to the entire time between Christ's ascension into heaven and his second coming, which is yet into the future. You see, ever since the day in which the angels told Jesus' disciples that he will come again in the same manner to which he ascended into heaven, the return of the Lord has been imminent, which means that there is nothing else that needs to happen before Jesus returns. Christ has done all of his work and we are awaiting his second coming. And so he can come at any time. And so that's why James can say, even as far back as the first century, that the coming of the Lord is at hand, or the judge is standing at the door, as he does in verse 8 and verse 9 of our chapter. The Lord's return is imminent. It could happen at any time, like a thief in the night. So we must be prepared. And with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, Christ has brought heavenly realities down to earth and set into motion the renewal of all things. And so Jesus really did usher in the last day or last days, and we are the ones upon whom the end of the ages has come. As Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and so since heavenly realities have been ushered into the present age, and since the present form of the world is passing away, we as citizens of the kingdom of heaven ought not to be tied to things on earth, but we ought to hold them with a very loose grip, 
lest they grip us. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. As Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and yet the rich of the world accumulate for themselves stuff, so much stuff that they can't even use it. And yet James says, you got your priorities all wrong. Now, part of the reason why the rich were able to accumulate so much wealth for themselves is because they defrauded their workers, keeping their hard-earned money for themselves. And here James is describing something that was very common in the first century. Indeed, it's very common in our day today, where wealthy landowners would hire day laborers to work their fields during the times of harvest. But those day laborers who were so poor expected to be paid at the end of the day. Even as we saw, see in our Lord's parable of the day laborers, where the guy goes out and he sends out for more and more workers and he pays them all the same wage, even those who showed up for the last hour of work. But you see, those guys needed their money by the end of the day so that they could go buy bread and bring it home to their family. And if they went home empty-handed, they would starve that very day. And so that's why James is condemning them for defrauding, for holding back the money. That's why we read in the law today in Leviticus 19, the wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. Give the man his money so he can go buy his daily bread. And as their stomachs are growling due to hunger and starvation, as they cry out to the Lord, their, their held back wages are crying out for justice. We can be sure that the Lord of hosts certainly hears. The very same one who said the laborer deserves his wages will one day come and enforce his statement. Well, in stark contrast to the starving day laborer, James paints a picture of the rich living in luxury and in self-indulgence, stuffing their faces with rich food. And yet the picture turns when he says that they are merely fattening themselves up for the day of slaughter. They're adding to their sin for the day of judgment. Well, not only have they hoarded their wealth, defrauded their workers, lived in self-indulgence and gluttony, but James even condemns them for the sin of murder. He says, you have condemned and murdered the righteous man. Now we might ask, were they actually murdering, that is physically murdering these people? Well, perhaps, and certainly that has and does happen, but that's probably not what James has in mind here when he says you have murdered the righteous man. Tying together this idea of having them condemned and picking up what he said back in chapter two, when he said, are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? I think we can have good reason to assume that with their wealth and influence, the rich of James's day were using their their influence in the crooked court system to their favor, to oppress and defraud the poor, to take away their lands and what little they had to be able to sue them and take it for themselves. And by taking away what small things that they had, 
they were in effect murdering them. You see, sin has consequences. Even one little sin can have radical implications affecting many, many people. And here James tells us that the Lord is very concerned with that chain of events tied back to our selfish greed. And so although the rich man will say, well, I have no blood on my hands, I haven't physically murdered anybody, by taking them to court, by condemning them, by defrauding them, by withholding their, their, what is due to them, James says, you have murdered. You have murdered the righteous man. And whereas we, it's impossible for us to even keep track of how many people our, our sins affect, the Lord knows. And he will repay every sin. He will judge every sin, whether at the cross or in the future when Christ returns. And when James finishes his condemnation of the wealthy, he speaks finally of the righteous man. He says, he, that is the righteous man, does not resist you. Here we see that the righteous man is following the teaching of our Lord, who said in the Sermon on the Mount, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. See, our Lord's words can easily be misunderstood. Jesus isn't saying that we ought to turn ourselves into a punching bag. What he's saying is that we as citizens of the kingdom of heaven ought not to be vindictive or engage in retaliation. And we ought not to be tied to the things of this world as if that's the end all and be all. As Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And so the righteous man need not resist the oppression of the wicked, rich people because he knows that the Lord will repay, that the Lord takes these things personally and he takes vengeance as his own possession. And so as we conclude, these very somber and unrelenting words of condemnation, keep in mind that James has two purposes in mind. First of all, he wants to comfort the afflicted. The vast majority of his audience were those who were living away from their homeland, who were living in abject poverty, who were living paycheck to paycheck, who were looking just for their daily bread. And they were oppressed and afflicted by the rich. And so when they hear these words of the imminent doom, of the miseries that will come upon their oppressors, they find comfort. This is good news for the righteous that God will come and judge the wicked and repay all the sins committed against us and right every wrong that we see. And so as we look around the world today and see all forms of oppression, we can take comfort that one day Christ will come and he will judge the wicked. So the first purpose is to comfort the afflicted. But I think James's other purpose is to afflict the comfortable. Unless we take too much joy in these words of James sticking it to the man, 
we need to keep in mind that as 21st century Americans, we are living a life of luxury and wealth that the world has never witnessed. That even the richest person of James' day would be flabbergasted at the amount of wealth and prosperity that we experience in this land. And so we need to be warned lest we fall into that sin of covetousness and materialism, lest we partake of the oppression of the poor. You see, as 21st century Americans, a lot of the health, wealth, and prosperity that we experience today comes at the expense of the, of the poor, of the oppressed, of minority groups and immigrants and third world countries. And so at the very least, we need to be mindful of the people who are serving us. I know in the global economy, it is very complex and it's hard to keep your hands completely clean, but at the very least, we ought to educate ourselves to be thankful and to be good stewards of the resources we have and freely give out of the abundance. So may we never have food on the shelves that rot or clothes that get moth-eaten or money that corrodes, we should give it away because after all, it's passing away. May God grant to us the hope of heaven and may we store up treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and thieves do not steal. And may we do all things giving thanks to the glory of God through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Let's give thanks. Dear Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that although you were rich, you became poor for us so that we might enjoy the riches of God, eternal life. We thank you that you paid for all of our sins and that you forgive us of all of our unrighteousness. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would fill our hearts with gratitude. We pray that we might find comfort in the fact that you will come and judge the wicked at the last day. But we pray that you would also guard our hearts from falling into the sin of covetousness and materialism. Oh Lord, may we do all things that are worthy, and, uh, worthy of the calling with which we have been called. And we ask this in your name. Amen.